the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome you to another one of our online programs. We've done over 500 since the pandemic began. And I'd also like to welcome all of those of you who will listen to this later on our YouTube or Facebook channels. Now, the Commonwealth Club uh, is uh, for San Francisco, an ancient organization. It's over 118 years. And uh, we're here uh, performing uh, a public service, uh, bringing as many ideas of, in public affairs to people to discuss what's really going on. And we also have this sideline uh, of authors talking about really important issues uh, that we also like to share with you. So uh, today our guest is Joe Cohane, um, the author of The Power of Strangers. And uh, we're going to talk about something very applicable to uh, this period of time, that is, has the increase in our distrust of strangers gone up? And is that a good thing or not? Uh, clearly, uh, Joe thinks not. So, Joe, um, first of all, congratulations. Great book. Um, thank you, George. Yeah, and thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm psyched to be here. And, and second of all, I thought it was very bold of you um, in, in your, your quotations that you quoted not only Marcel Proust, uh, but Jim Morrison on the same page. I thought that was <laughs> that was pretty cool. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, yeah. They're both they're both buried in the same Parisian cemetery. I thought that was pretty funny too. Um, <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to say that was uh, intentional, and I knew that. I did not know that. But thank you for telling me. That's good to know. <laughs> so uh, you state that strangers are both a threat, which we all understand, and an opportunity. So why don't we talk first about the opportunity? Well, strangers. Yeah. Before we talk about how bad they are. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So, so this book started because I, I sort of wondered why I had personally uh, sort of stopped talking to strangers. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised by people who talk to strangers all the time. My parents are super chatty. They make friends all the time, even today. Um, and I was, you know, I would do it, not as much as they did, but I did it. But then all of a sudden I realized I just stopped doing it. And, um, and so I started wondering what had made me stop doing it. And then asking bigger questions are like, why don't people talk to strangers? When will they? What happens when they do? Uh, and that took me down a, a whole lot of different paths. You know, the upside to talking to strangers, you can break it across a few different lines. Um, firstly... Over the last 15 years or so, a growing group of psychologists have studied what happens when we have an interaction with a stranger. And the positive benefits that they've found, and these psychologists are people like Nicholas Epley at the University of Chicago and, and Jillian Sandstrom at the University of Essex in uh, England, um, they find that even relatively passing pedestrian interactions with strangers, like a little bit of chat with the barista at your coffee shop, um, have pretty surprising benefits. So they can, you know, the people who, who have been sent out these studies to go chat up random strangers, um, report back feeling that it, it made them feel happier, it enhanced their sense of self, or their, and their sense of well-being. It made them feel like they belonged to the place where they lived. It made them feel less lonely. It made them feel more optimistic. Um, all these things were the result of like relatively simple interactions with strangers. Uh, and those are the personal benefits, sort of, you know, kind of well-being category of benefits. There are bigger, more abstract, and more social benefits too. Like when you interact with someone you don't know, maybe they tell you something new. Maybe they have information or insight or perspective that ends up being really valuable to you or enriches you in some way. Maybe they become a friend. Maybe they become a business partner, maybe they become a romantic partner. You know, we have a we have a genius for expanding our social networks as humans. And the way we've been able to do it is by be finding ways to be comfortable talking to strangers, to take advantage of some of these, these benefits that we can have. Um, and then, you know, to our current sorrows, um, a fair amount of research has found that when people do have conversations with people who are from different groups that they might feel prejudiced towards, that their group might be at odds with, 
um, conversations can actually alleviate prejudice. Um, they can actually take the heat down on some kind of whatever the conflict is and open the way for some sort of cooperation um, between you know, these two groups that otherwise you know, would have a hard time cooperating with each other. Some of the interesting parts of that research in your book were things as simple as you have a common name in I know someone who has the same name or this, or you both have children named the same, those kind of things. I, I, it's very simple. And then it makes people feel not so strange. I, I found yeah, that fascinating. Right. And you got to ask yourself why that's the case. So, yeah. so you're talking about something called, um, it can go by incidental similarities and also the idea of what they call mere belonging. And that's when you have something in common with somebody else. It can be ridiculous. It can be you have the same you know, letter in your last name. It could be you have the same birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, those things make us way more comfortable talking to someone than not having those things. You know, to give you an example from my life, I grew up in Boston. And I, so I wear a Red Sox hat, um, not because I'm necessarily a fan, uh, though I used to love the Red Sox, um, but just because I love the hat and that, that's my hometown. I live in New York now. And I find that every, literally every single time I go outside, people will come up to me and start talking to me because I have that Red Sox hat. Mm-hmm. They feel so completely comfortable with me, not having any idea who I am, just because I have a hat with a B on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that sort of thing all the time. You know, you see someone who has a T-shirt that's like yours. You, you know, we look for those commonalities, um, especially when we feel kind of comfortable and we feel safe, um, when we're not kind of on our back heels and we're not feeling threatened. Um, we seek those things out. And the reason we seek those out is because there is like, um, and it's adaptive for us to seek those sorts of connections and find those commonalities and use them to build our social networks. Part of the, uh, not the current research, but just the historical record that you went into was societies that developed um, a respect for strangers and an attempt to, to make hospitality to strangers a crucial part of it. So why don't, why don't you talk about the history of that a little bit? Because it, it's interesting, it's just the opposite of what you would expect, because obviously the, the idea of us all being tribal and hate outsiders and all that kind of thing, which there's plenty of evidence for too. This is just the opposite. Um, yeah, you know, the the idea that we're, people say we're tribal and they assume that what tribal is is like, hardened xenophobic people with uncrossable boundaries and like a fixed composition of who their group is that doesn't change. Mm. Uh, That's malarkey. That's not as far as we know. And this is, you know, this is a best guess because it's based on the anthropological field studies and ethnography, ethnographies, sorry, um, over the last 200, 300 years or so. Um, So we're kind of extrapolating from that, but tribes, you know, there was a lot of traffic between groups. As far as we know, people Mm. would, maybe get bored. Maybe they're looking for mates. Um, there was a lot more cosmopolitan than we give them credit for. So when we say we're, we're acting tribal, uh, we're not really acting tribal. We're kind of maligning how tribes worked when we, when we define uh, tribal in such a negative way. But there is a belief that our default is xenophobia, right? And there's this sort of this, this idea that the only thing that holds civilization, like civilization is just like a thin crust over a cauldron of murder and treachery, right? Um, mm. But in reality, <laughs> we have a, we have like a moral dial. There are, there's this idea in philosophy that we, we have this dial and under certain circumstances, the dial is cranked all the way to inclusiveness. And we consider other people who are different than we are humans and we can find ways to cooperate with them. And then when we feel threatened, um, it can be turned all the opposite direction to exclusive and violent. And that's when dehumanization happens and genocide happens and war happens and things like that. Um, you know, you mentioned hospitality, which is one of my favorite things from the research because um, I wondered the same thing. Why, why is this? And you go through ethnographies of, of a lot of traditional societies and even the ethnographers are like, why are they laying out the red car, like the, the, you know, the red carpet for strangers? Why are they um, hosting them so lavishly and giving them these big meals and treating them like Kings? And it's a really interesting question. There's a man named Martin Jones, who's a, an archeologist in England and Jones studies ancient DNA. And his theory is that, when humans, this has been, you know, 12,000 years or so ago, when humans pioneered agriculture, all of a sudden, the whole category of their societies was like obsolete, right? Because the hunters used to get the food, there was hunters and gatherers, um, society shift to farming, farming, you know, as far as we know, was probably more women's work. Um, and now you have a bunch of guys who used to do the hunting, and now they have nothing to do. So Jones's theory is that those men started wandering around the time that humans started settling down. They just left, right? They had nowhere to, nowhere to be. Uh, they probably had some sort of existential crisis in some way, but they started wandering. Jones calls them surplus males. They're mm. like unneeded males. And what happened with the surplus males is they just started traveling. Now, prior to the establishment of settlements, 
when people actually had like little villages and stuff, which they were able to do because they controlled the food supply. If you wandered into the wilderness, you were probably just going to die, right? You don't know where anyone else is. You can't, you know, you're, you're extremely vulnerable. But when people started settling down, these surplus males started wandering and happening upon little settlements, right? Little villages, little farms. And now, what do we think? If we have a really negative reading of humanity, we just assume that the people in those farms are just going to kill that guy, right? Mm. Because he's an interloper. He's a stranger. He's like come over the horizon. They don't know who he is. They don't know if he has malign intent. Um, but instead, what seems to have happened is that we developed hospitality. And so hospitality was a way to deal with uh, surplus males, according to Martin Jones's work. So these guys show up, you know, you don't know who he is. He might be good company. He might know something really valuable. He might have some kind of farming um, insight or some kind of, you know, kind of primitive technology or, a, or an item that you might like. You might have something. You might have something to bring to the table, but you also don't know who he is. He might be a threat. So when people created hospitality, it was to literally bring the person into the house to domesticate the threat in a way mm-hmm. and to give them things and in kind of in doing so, making them indebted to their hosts and making them, you know, the host shows the, the stranger that the stranger is not a threat by behaving himself. The stranger shows the host that he's not a threat either. And once they become comfortable, they can actually talk. They can spend time together. And then over time, this happens enough. And it seems like this just kind of this happened pretty widely. Um, Jones believes that this is the cornerstone of civilization, this exchange. Um people started building bigger and bigger and bigger social networks because they had the opportunity to meet people who lived in other places. So if you were a host to one person and you were able to, you you knew where the next person was going to go, you could go visit him and you could use these settlements as like little nodes of transit, like bus stations. And at that moment, um, over a thousand years or so, humanity just exploded out of Africa. Um, We started traveling longer distances than we ever had in the past, at least according to what we know from the archaeological record. Um, And Jones's idea is that it's hospitality that did that. Mm -hmm. It's an ability to reconcile the fear of the stranger with the opportunity of the stranger. And, you know, if we had just killed all the strangers, then humanity would not have, you know, covered every corner of the world. And, you know, that might be a bad thing. Maybe, maybe people aren't a huge fan of humanity. <laughs> there are people we who would prefer that, yeah. <laughs> right. We have, we have caused some problems, uh, for sure. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm a man for civilization. I like civilization. I like a good drink and some decent music. Um, but that's the, that was the cornerstone, right? Like, that was the foundational event. Um, but there's also evidence that shows that um, even hunter-gatherer groups were pretty adept at creating kind of ritualized structures for welcoming people into their little bands of, like, 6 to 20 people. They figured out ways to do this. And the fact that this was happening suggests that there's something innate about it to humanity. Like, humanity, if, if they can feel comfortable, they will welcome the stranger because it is, like I said, adaptive to grow your social network and build alliances and find new mates and, and all the rest. Well, the, the second moving uh, scene in the musical Les Mis is the, the, the prisoner, uh, Jean Valjean, going to the priest's house and being taken in and given hospitality. And then he steals the stuff and he leaves and then he's caught. And then the priest says, oh, I, I, you, you forgot something that I gave you. And, and it moves people because it's like, how much hospitality are you going to give this guy who just stole from you? And, and, it's, and it shows uh, how deeply it affected the thing so I, that yeah. that image obviously is deep in our our, our culture and, and it's so rare that it's taken to that extreme that it really goes through uh, another thing that you you signaled er, earlier in in the conversation was that you're you use the word malarkey and i thought okay that's a that's now a a biden term you know i mean this is like, we now have a president who uses this word but anyway it, it it shows a certain part of the country um you know we we use that word for nonsense um but let's go back even further because, uh, you know, you're saying by this hospitality that we're kind of bonobos, right? We're, we're, we're more related to the bonobos than the chimpanzees. And why don't you explain it? Because it's interesting that the DNA is, is very similar. I know we're very similar to all of them. Um, but you said that the chimpanzees and the bonobos, how they got started, how they split, that was a very interesting piece of information and in how different they became. Yeah, and it goes back to like what our nature is, so questions about our nature mm-hmm. and people who believe that our nature is like a fixed nature, right? And mm-hmm. when we're good to each other, it's an exception to the rule of our like, you know, cruel and violent nature. Um, yeah, I dug into our closest genetic relatives, which are going to be chimpanzees and bonobos. 
and chimpanzees are famously xenophobic. Um, I spent time talking to a person who like runs a chimpanzee research facility in Georgia about the incredible difficulty of introducing strange chimpanzees to each other. It's a process that takes weeks. You have to like, you have to bring them closer and closer together, like millimeter by millimeter. So they don't kill (laughs) each other. And then in the end, sometimes they just attack each other anyways, and you have to start over. They're deeply, deeply, deeply xenophobic. Um, they don't, you know, they don't, they, they cooperate a little bit, but it's very tit for tat. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of on edge. Um, you know, they, they're kind of, I don't know, pragmatic, pragmatic. You don't see a lot of altruism with chimps, right? (laughs) But then you start looking at, um, at bonobos, which is, you know, much smaller population of apes, um, that only live in a small kind of small area. Um, and bonobos, we share 95% of our genetic material with bonobos. And they're the complete opposite of chimpanzees. So they, you know, studies by people like Brian Hare at Duke University have found that not only will bonobos not attack a stranger who they're put in the proximity with, they will share food with the stranger, right? Mm -hmm. They'll give the stranger food um, when you put them together. They won't fight. They'll, like, the one that controls the food will give food to the stranger, which is remarkable in in the natural world. And Hare even found that they prefer to give food to a stranger before they share food with a friend Mm -hmm. or with a relative, right? And this shows you how important it is to bonobos to um, build those social bonds. And so, you know, again, this is sort of best guess, but um, according to Richard Rangham at Harvard, um, we believe what happened here was um, during the previous ice age, you know, the the earth becomes dry and cool. um, And the Congo River, which is where these, this, where the the kind of ur chimp population lived, um, the Congo River dried up. And so on one side of the Congo River, you have mountains. On the other side, you don't have mountains. A population of chimpanzees crossed that dry riverbed and just started living on the other side. Right. And, you know, we don't have a sense of how many, but, um, but they went over there. And then in tens of thousands of years, um, the water came back, the river came up, filled up again, and it severed the two populations. Now, the difference between the chimp population um, on the banks of of that river and the bonobo population is that the chimps were stuck on the side with mountains, and the mountains had the gorillas. So the chimps had to compete for food with gorillas, and gorillas are obviously fairly hungry creatures. So their (laughs) life was much harder. You know, they had to travel further to get food. They had to fight for food. They really had to struggle. They they lived a hard-knock life over there on that side of the Congo River. The bonobos, on the other hand, were on the other side of the river. They didn't have to share resources with gorillas. So they were just fat and happy. Right. They they didn't need to fight. Um, They didn't need to travel so much like everything they needed was there. And as a result, that species evolved to be um, a matriarchal society where the females held the political power because unlike chimps, they got to stay together. Right. They weren't being like, you know, to give you an example with chimpanzees, when chimpanzees would have to travel to get food, a female could be preyed upon by the most aggressive male. Right. He could just basically go and, and just take her. Um, and so he would impregnate her and then the genes for aggression would be passed along. And that's, you know, that, you know, as, as unpleasant as it is, that worked pretty well for chimpanzees. But because the bonobos didn't have to travel, the women were able to stay together. They ne- never had to go out on their own, which meant they had the power of numbers. They had the political power mm-hmm. and they could fend off and punish male aggression. So over time, you know, the, the females who basically like dominated bonobo society chose the mates, they chose the males, and they chose males that were going to be more docile and more cooperative. And that's how the species evolved. Um, and so it's, you know, there's some interesting insights into humanity there, because we we can go both ways. We are, mm-hmm. Franz de Waal, the primatologist, said that we're bipolar apes, which is a pretty good way of putting it. <laughs> Under certain circumstances, um, we can be remarkably generous and empathetic and curious and open and then other under other circumstances we can just completely reject the humanity of the people around us and we can torture them we can kill them and we can feel no compunction over it whatsoever but it's very much like due to the context we'll come back to humanity again uh, for a second but uh, also ancient uh, you told retold the story of uh, lot and his daughters from the from the bible um, and you told it as a crime against hospitality uh, rather than something else. Why don't, you, why don't you explain that story as a crime against hospitality? Yeah, so um, I, don't, I haven't talked about this in a little while. So God wants to sack Sodom, right? 
Um, and I really haven't talked about this since I since the book came out. So so tell me if I if I go off the track. Uh, I have no retention, no memory anymore since uh, a year in the hole with a toddler and no childcare. <laughs> it's just destroyed me mentally and emotionally. Um, <clears throat> so you know the 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 armies are going to move on Sodom, and so um, they send three spies to the walls of Sodom. Um, there are three spies, they're angels, but they're basically functioning as spies. Right. They visit the home of um, Rahab, a prostitute named Rahab, who had a house built against the wall. Oh, wait, am I so thinking that's, of Jericho? That's Jericho. I'm thinking of Jericho. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, so, George. So before the walls of Jericho. So uh, Lot, I'll just get you started. The Lot, they sent, right. uh, he sent two angels to the house of Lot. Lot's the only, supposed to be the only good person in Sodom, and he's going to save him. The two angels come in. Uh, Lot's also got two daughters, and the local community comes, and they all want to have sex with the angels, right? So right, right, yeah. Which is like a, you, you see that a lot in the Old Testament, where angels appear, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a continuation of the Greek tradition in a lot of ways, yeah. or, or at least a parallel to it, where you have gods and angels and priests pretending to be strangers to make sure that people are treating them properly, and then when they don't, they uh, just rain hell on them um, <laughs> and destroy their destroy their towns. Or in the case of Zeus, like he just kept turning people into birds. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot yeah. of folk traditions involving like it's kind of like folk stories involving Jesus that are kind of non-canonical um, right. that appear all over the place where he would he and Peter would turn up at someone's door and ask for bread. And if they were a jerk to him, like they would he and Peter would turn the people into birds. Everyone would get <laughs> turned into birds. That's <laughs> so great. But they, all those those stories turned up like, you know, independent of one another all over the place. Um, but a lot of the yeah, a lot of the key pivot points in the Bible involve hospitality. I mean, all the way up through Christ, who is the kind of embodiment of hospitality to the stranger. That was the whole deal. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, that particular story, and you have a very funny footnote. By the way, uh, you know, uh, don't skip the footnotes in the book because they're very funny. It, usually, it's a joke rather than more information. Um, and particularly like the one where you just said "lol." You know, <laughs> <laughs> about the care with the the roadkill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the story, and, and people don't pay attention to the details of the story very well uh, on this because it's considered this this important, you know, biblical story. But Lot has these two young uh, teenage daughters that are still virgins, y- young women anyway. And, uh, and the crowd, he, he says to the crowd when they want the angels, um, he says no. And they just keep pestering him and pestering him outside. And he says, well, you can have my daughters, but you can't have my, you can't have my guests. Um, you know, that's pretty extreme, if you ask me, uh, being hospitality. Um, in extreme, any case, they leave yeah. town, uh, you know, in order to save themselves. And, and I, always, I always felt, this doesn't say this in the Bible, I always felt that the daughters got back at their father <laughs> up in the mountains for, for having you know, pushed him off like that. But that's only <laughs> one, that's only one alternative. Um, I, I think this is a good example of the first you know, troll, like, like, like a, 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 an internet troll. Uh, we, we get a few here at the Commonwealth Club you know, putting things in our chat room. Um, but clearly a later, a later interpolation, a later scribe, doesn't pay attention to what the story really means and then tells the story about Lot's daughters having children with their father. And, and one is Moab. Well, it's clear that he's just trying to insult the Moabites, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it ruins the whole story about Lot and his family being the only good ones in town and all that kind of stuff. So it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating, it's like trolling is more important than, than the story that you're, that you're supposed to be copying down. <laughs> word I, know, for word. Yeah. I, I feel it's one of the first examples of that in history. So that's anyway, amazing. that's why I like that yeah. they use the story. And, uh, I love that. So yeah, the, you know, a lot of the, uh, I, I went deep into hospitality traditions and, and there is like the, like the history of Arab hospitality is that extreme too. There basically, yeah. there are rules of, if a man who kills your brother comes to your house for hospitality, you have to give him hospitality. You cannot hurt him. And if someone comes to hurt him when he's, he's like in your home, you have to fight that person off. Like it's right. very, very serious. So you have to ask yourself, why is this so serious that it turns up in these, in these um, holy texts and these folk traditions? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because it was just um, formative. I mean, it was a really important part of the evolution of human societies. Yeah, and it's a nomadic tribe. I mean, a nomadic <laughs> culture, and therefore strangers are going to be an extreme part of their life going and their life coming. I, I think it was great how you show in the book that, that these uh, developments are basically due to the culture and the geography and, and the climate and what's going on in that particular area versus because on average, you'd, you'd have to say that more often people were afraid of strangers and, 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 and dealt with them harshly. Um, so on a big scale, you know, that, that's individual scale, but you also talk about the big scale of, of not paying attention to strangers, you know, and, and, and saying not accepting strangers into your society and the cost of it. 
you don't use the example of the Huguenots, um, but that strikes me as, you know, like any time a society says, these strangers that have been in our midst for hundreds of years even sometimes, uh, we can't tolerate them anymore. We kick them out. It's almost always devastating to the society that kicks the, 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 the other group out. I mean, right. it, it hurts the people that get sent on the road as well. But it's almost always devastating. I mean, the Spanish uh, kicking uh, everybody out in, in the late uh, 15th century and the French kicking the Huguenots out. Uh, those are examples. And the Jews obviously happened to them many times. But yeah, yeah. it's almost a, always a, really bad point. for the country. And the ones who opened their door to the strangers, um, you know, did very well. And that's, that's, American, that's America's story, pretty much, you know, why we did well. We opened our doors to the, to the immigrants from all kinds right, of countries. Yeah. So. yeah, it's just, I think, when you, when you demonize a group within your own society, it just gets out of control, you know, in a lot of cases. It's, uh, you, all of a sudden, you're just like, they're not like us. They're not one of us. They're not part of our group. And then you start asking questions, well, who's our group? And then that group keeps getting more and more obsessed with the maintaining the purity of the group and expunging mm. anyone who's a threat to the group, even if it's not a real physical threat or something. And then it just unravels. But yeah, you see it. It's, it's a kind of a form of madness. I mean, we've seen again and again and again that the societies that are able to foster cooperation across those boundaries of difference are the ones that do well. And you can see this in a corporate setting, you can see it in a social setting, but bringing in different types of people from different places with different experiences, provided that they can actually like they will be equals the people will cooperate with them and and they'll be included in the society is usually enriching i mean you just get the benefit of all these different perspectives and these different ideas um it's really good for a society to have that sort of diversity but there's always the temptation to just push the button and the button is just like them 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 you know the obsession on us the obsession with us and the obsession with them um and it's that button is right there and it's really hard for people to resist the temptation to push uh, though we know what happens when it when when it is pushed yeah. frequently, but you know it's just for for me as an American at this moment, you just see that constantly relentless messaging about them. They are taking something away from us. Yeah. Um, whereas you know fostering cooperation is going to make for a healthier and and honestly like probably more economically solid um, nation. Yeah, and 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 more brilliant uh, and and smarter at solving problems. I mean, like you said, I mean if you go back to the wandering males, I thought that was a great thing. You know, the surplus young males just sent on the road and you can see them as itinerant, you know, sellers of little bulls and stuff like that, but probably seeding, uh, you know, the DNA everywhere uh, they went uh, in addition to everything else that they did. Um, so uh, one thing about that, you know, history, I think that, that I haven't heard it in the context of this at all, but there's a new push for diversity and diverse uh, points of view and, and everyone should have a diverse uh, set of people inputting them, uh, you know, in, into big decisions and stuff like that. And we have all that history, if you talk about strangers, for, for why that's a good idea. And that should be added to the pile of good reasons for why we should do this. Uh, we won't spend uh, any more time on that big issue because we'll, we want to keep talking about strangers and the danger. Uh, you know where I'm going next, stranger danger. So mm -hmm. I just, I, I, as you said, it's a, just a very catchy meme. So tell us where, I mean, my, my daughter's, uh, you know, in the, in the aughts uh, in grade school got that very, very strong. Um, and uh, this stranger danger problem. I want you to tell the story of how it came from and, and actually, you know, how, how they're backing away from it now too. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as part of the research in this, I was trying to understand why people don't talk to strangers. A big thing that kept coming up again and again and again is that we're afraid of strangers. And um, there's an argument that, we're afraid of strangers because of the relentless stranger danger messaging that, you know, my generation got, I think the previous generation got, you know, I think probably three generations in a row were just really had this idea drilled into their heads that literally everyone in the world they don't met, uh, they, everyone in the world they don't know poses a threat to them, mm -hmm. right? Which is a crazy thing to tell a child. Like it's, yeah. you know, there's, there's some political science research that finds that that actually effectively poisoned an entire generation's ability to trust other people. Mm -hmm. um, and we all, I remember like, I remember being horrified. Like, you know, you were just so afraid of vans after a while. Anytime you saw a van, you would just run away from the <laughs> van because we spent so much time in school with like a parade of police officers coming in telling us like of all the grave threats that will befall us if we let our guard down for a second. Mm. Never mind the fact that there's no statistical basis to, to support that kind of messaging. Uh, the vast, the, do you, do yeah. you have those statistics? I mean, I, I thought they were really t tremendous. It was uh, 65 stranger issues and 286,000, you know, family or someone that you know caused the problem. I mean, the, the percentage was just unbelievable. Yeah. 
Oh, they're, they're, it's off the charts. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we know now, and we knew it then too. People yeah. knew it then. There were some voices of reason, but people didn't want to listen to it because it was a moral panic. And you know, when people panic, they're very hard to reach. <laughs> um, but the the vast majority of serious crimes are committed by people known to the victim. Vast majority, um, mm-hmm. five six times more. Right? Um, you, I think, in two thousand sixteen. Although I'd have to double check this, you had a greater chance of being killed by your parents than you did being killed by a stranger. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you would just drill this 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 notion in the kids' heads that strangers are the dangerous thing, when in fact it's not the strangers. It's not the strangers that you know do most of these abductions that commit murders and, and most murders and sexual assaults and, and major assaults. And things like that it's people that we know um so yeah, you know, what, put that what would the schools a, have done a psa if, that's a pretty horrifying yeah, psa yeah exactly what um, would the schools have like, done if someone came around and said that said right. you know you know don't worry about the strangers because they usually don't bother you and in fact sometimes they'll help you but but yeah. watch out for your parents that's the thing yeah i know you want to know where the threat is the threat is in the, in the bedroom <laughs> next door um, that and down. that's a hard thing to hear because we yeah. are you know we are wary of strangers we do have that kind of dial in us that makes it easy when when it's turned for us to just assume that people we don't know are like a, a serious existential threat to us um but that was a real problem that, that lasted for a really long time and so i got on the phone with um cal walsh uh, mm-hmm. who's who's great um and he's the son of john walsh and he's the brother of adam walsh and adam walsh is one of those high profile abduction and murders from the 80s mm-hmm. um that started this whole moral panic and john walsh's father's you know he hosted america's um most wanted and he started the national centers for exploited and, and um, missing and exploited children and cal works at that at that firm as well he's a tv producer but he kind of toggles um and they realized a few years ago that this is just bad. This is bad to tell kids this. Like it's it's actively harmful because if a kid's in a situation where they're being pestered or bothered by someone, or someone's trying to lure them into something and they're alone, the strangers, the people who are going to help them are going to be strangers. It's going to be another mother. It's going to be a cop. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's crazy to tell them that no stranger can be trusted, especially when we know that the rel- like a relative or a friend of the family is going to be the real the real threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so the National Centers for Missing and Exploited Children decided a couple of years ago that they were going to retire stranger danger. They weren't going to do it anymore. And mm-hmm. Cal Walsh's line is we want kids to be safe. We don't want to scar them for life. Mm-hmm. So they're moving towards something else. Um, you know, still not to be like, go, go with anyone who comes up to you right. to be savvy, to be street smart, but not to like poison a, a kid's ability to trust other people when the, the basis of civilization is that sort of trust. It's, yeah. you know, like Amazon vans are everywhere, you know, <laughs> right, I know. Those vans are everywhere now. I still flinch. I flinch when I see them, but for myriad reasons now. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's a crazy thing, and it is like it's people in a in a panic mode, and it rhymed. I think if it didn't rhyme, it wouldn't have lasted as long yeah, as it did. right, right. Um, but it did a lot of damage. It did a lot of damage. It gave us really bad data on what people are like, and I think that's really harmful. So I have a really big sociological question. I don't know if you came across any of this or not, but. Because of all that stranger danger, do you think that that increased the fears due to 9-11, due to other things that have happened since then, the Muslim threat, that's a real stranger danger sort of situation? Um, Because, again, it's a very small percentage of of that group that's causing any difficulty. Um, And it seems that um, the generation, of course, they'd gone through uh, the Depression and World War I, but the generation that met something like World War II uh, took, seemed to have taken that huge thing in stride more than we've taken 9-11 in stride. And, mm. and, and for six years during World War II, every day more people die than died in 9-11. That doesn't mean 9-11 wasn't a, a, a very serious, terrible incident. But it wasn't the end of civilization. Even World War II wasn't the end of civilization. So, so I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting maybe that this basic idea of, of, about not trusting other people... Uh, got us partially into that problem. It, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I didn't, I didn't study that so much, but, um, but I would be curious, like levels of racism uh, against Germans versus against Japanese, if people mm-hmm. were more racist towards Japanese during World War II, which mm-hmm. at least according to like cartoons and stuff, I think mm-hmm. they probably were. Um, it's human psychology. Um, you know, like we definitely consider people who look like us to be more likely candidates, uh, like to be more approachable, more comprehensible, right? If they look like we do. Um, and if they look differently, it, it's just another hurdle to get over um, mm-hmm. to, to arrive at some sort of understanding. I think with, with 9-11, it could be that. I think it was a lot of it was just kind of 
basic human psychology. You're under attack, right? And when we're mm -hmm. under attack, it hits a switch and, and we just get into a mode where it's us and them. Um, and that can be really powerful. And it can, it's obviously like we do it for a reason because it works in, in times of war. The problem is it misfires constantly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was a little bit of that. I think it was probably relentless messaging about this unknowable, mysterious um, race of people who are after us because they hate our freedom. Like, you know, all those messages do not give you the idea that 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 group that Muslims as a group are like humans like we are. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of kind of animalizing them as a group. There's a lot of prejudice against them. It may have been stranger danger. It may have contributed to it, but I'm guessing it's, it's not, not a major I'll, portion, but I mean, people well, are afraid. It's probably, I think a lot of it was messaging from elites, you know, uh, mm. and that coupled with just a kind of innate human wariness of uh, other groups in times of duress. Well, another example of things where that this goes wrong in history is, uh, you know, every, every, uh, group, every group of people with their leadership, they make, they're responsible for the decisions they make. But how we treat them, you know, in the process that leads up to their decision has a big bearing on how they decide to do things. Just like you say in talking to strangers, what you do, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that next. Um, how, what you do and how you do it is going to make a big difference in the outcome. But uh, an example is Japan. I mean, from the time that they adopted Western ways until World War II, they tried so many different ways to, to try to be part of the club, part of the European club, part of this, part of that, and, and mostly racism, but, but maybe even geography. Just everyone's kept saying to them, no, you're, you're, not, you don't, you're not included. You can't be included in our family and that kind of thing. And I, I think it, it added to their violence um, later. I, I, I'm sure of that. And I, I think we're making the same mistake now with China and Russia. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. they, the, the Russians have wanted to be part of Europe for hundreds of years. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that they're not bad players, um, but, but part of their bad playing is, is, is in reaction to being rejected all the time. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see that on an individual level on a, and on a social level as well, that mm -hmm. when people are ostracized or people are left out, um, it makes them very, very angry. No. Um, it sets off a lot, of, a lot of negative things because it's so important to be included, right? It's right. so important to be accepted. We seem to have like an innate human need to be accepted, to belong. And so when other people say, the hell with you, you can't belong, it's like, you know, my daughter's young. When kids say that to her in school, it kills her. It's so mm. painful to her. Uh, and I remember that as a kid, too. And, you know, it doesn't happen to me so much now. But, um, but that's really painful. And you can, you can inflict that pain on whole societies, too. I mean, you can kind of make that argument with Germany before World War II as well. Right. Um, that they felt not listened to, not engaged, excluded, um, you know, for, for in some cases for valid reasons. But, um, but yeah, it kind, of, it kind of makes people crazy, for sure. So um, we'll get to the Q&A in just a little while, but maybe uh, talk, in your book, you also spend a, a, a lot of time, um, now we've set up the, the, both the threat and the opportunity of strangers. You spend a lot of time about techniques that are out there, different groups that are doing things. It was really quite fascinating, um, people trying to get other people to talk to strangers. Um, so why don't you say some of the ideas that, that uh, these people have developed as, as a good way to do it. By the way, um, one of the, your rules that even lasts at the end is don't ever talk to anybody on an elevator, right? You, you, you're, just, you're, you're not supposed to talk to people on elevators. You know, just... I've, talk, I've talked to people on elevators. I do too. I've got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am, I am. Yeah, exactly. I know that was in there. Um, yeah, you can do it. It's actually, I find it kind of thrilling to do that. Um, to really, that's, that's a pretty sacred social norm, but people are often kind of tickled by the audacity when you do it, as long as you're not being like an idiot about it. Well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll give you one example of being an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Although it worked. Um, uh, I was in my late 20s and I was in Milwaukee um, for um, a, a lecture in a hotel. And we were on the elevator on the way up and it was a, it was a relatively formal lecture, so I had a suit on. Um, and uh, I was there with two brothers. And on the third floor, the door opened up and a young bride walked on all by herself, totally dressed, you know, to be married, looking absolutely radiant, got on the elevator pushed a button, and she, and she didn't know exactly which button. She was, this button, this button, this button, this button. And so I said to her, I said to her, are you looking for a groom? <laughs> <laughs> and it took her two, two seconds, and then she broke up laughing. She looked at me, and she said, I actually have one somewhere. It's either on the ninth floor or the tenth floor. But oh, if he's not great. there, I'll come back on the elevator. <laughs> I love that. My buddy did this thing the other day, my friend Christian, who's, who's, who does stuff like this all the time, and he's very good at it. He works in, he's like a, um, he works in PR, so his communication skills are fantastic. And he walks on the elevators, and he looks around, and he goes, I'm guessing you're all wondering why I've gathered you here today. <laughs> That's always his elevator. 
And everybody laughs. I mean, because there's tension there too, right? Like everyone's sure. kind of tense because we know that it's unnatural to be standing with all these people in dead silence. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so when I was when I was doing this, I, I took classes. I consulted a lot of experts. I tried a lot of things in the field. I spent you know two years or something just talking to people all the time to see what worked and what didn't work and what their reaction was and how it felt to me. You know, like I said, I had kind of stopped doing this. Um, stop talking to strangers. As far as I can tell, it's because of a mix of technology and then just being overwhelmed with a demanding job and a young kid. Um, but when I realized that I wasn't doing it, I felt like I had lost serendipity. I felt like my life was it just wasn't as rich as it was before because there wasn't so many, just didn't have all these great surprises that you have when you talk to people all the time. Um, so I wanted to build myself up from scratch. I wanted to start from zero as though mm-hmm. I was like an extremely out of shape person who's going to train for a marathon. You don't go out and run 13 <laughs> miles. Like you have to stand up first, right? <laughs> Do that first, <laughs> then take a little walk. Um, so it started with like making eye contact with taking my headphones out um, and not looking at my phone and walking down the street and just noticing other people, which felt kind of radical on its own, just because I live in New York. I never, you know, you notice people sometimes, but it's all out of like your peripheral vision. But noticing them, making eye contact, smiling sometimes, saying good morning and just seeing where it goes, just did a lot of stuff like that to get comfortable. And then I just started getting like more and more advanced and started becoming interested in more difficult things like chatting someone up on the subway, which no one's supposed to do, or Mm. having a conversation with someone from a group that your group is like at odds with, like Democrats and Republicans together, say, Mm -hmm. and how those conversations worked. But, you know, a couple of great tips that I got came from this woman named Georgie Nightingale, who runs an organization called... um, called Trigger Conversations in London. And I heard about her through a psychologist, Jillian Sandstrom, who's like the leading researcher on some of this stuff. And she introduced me to Georgie and Georgie said she was gonna have a class. She's gonna like teach a class on talking to strangers. So I was just like, sign me up. I got in a plane, flew to London, took the class. And, um, and she's, she's brilliant at it. She's amazingly good at it. And she identifies as an introvert, which I think is really telling um, mm-hmm. that she sees the value of these interactions, but she, she has to work for it, right? It doesn't come naturally to her. And as a result, she's just very conscious of what works and what doesn't work in a way that she wouldn't be if she was just a natural. It's like what they say about tennis players, um, where great tennis players make terrible coaches because it's just natural. They don't even know what they're doing. They're just mm-hmm. doing it. So they can't explain it. Um, so Georgia is an introvert who's become a master at this, and therefore she can articulate it. and She can break these interactions down. And one of her big points was we spend a lot of time following scripts in our day-to-day lives. So if we go to the store and someone says, how are you doing? And we say, I'm doing fine. How are you? And they say, fine. And like, you're not, you're not interested. You're not having any sort of real conversation. There's no content to it. It's just kind of signaling to each other that you're there and you have to say something. Um, Georgie's idea for starting conversations out of those, those like scripted interactions is to break the script. And the way to break the script is to be specific. So when someone says, how are you doing? Georgie will say something like, eh, I'm, I'd say I'm about a seven out of 10. How are you doing? <laughs> And so now the person is on notice, right? Something different is happening here. And she's paying attention to them. She's actually talking to them. She's not treating like someone at a cashier, a cash register, like a robot. And they, you know, understandably, they appreciate that. Um, and, you know, most of the time they'll follow her lead. She's modeled the way this conversation is going to go and they'll follow her. And so when she says, how are you doing? They'll say, yeah, I'm probably an eight. And then she'll say, what will it take to get you to a 10? And then they'll say something about their life or something about their day. And then you're off to the races. You've gotten a little glimmer of this person's humanity. Maybe you get a funny little story. Maybe you get this little connection. It doesn't have to take forever. You don't have to talk for an hour. But those interactions can be really enriching and and really nice and uh, and kind of root you in the world and give you a little glimpse of someone else's life. Uh, I like that a lot. For more difficult interactions, Georgie has this technique where, you know, because there's such a strong social norm against talking to strangers in cities. I'm not talking about small towns so much, Mm -hmm. though certainly some small towns are unfriendly. I've had experiences in in small town (laughs) Texas that did not go very well for me. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the the pace of life is slower, so people do tend to be friendlier if you're in the Midwest or the South um, or in a small town, just because you don't have a million people around. But when you're in the city, the social norm is against talking to strangers in public. You can talk to people in a bar, you can talk to people in a restaurant, whatever. But when you're like on a subway, you are not supposed to talk to people. No one knows why this norm is formed, but there it is. And it makes people very uncomfortable to do it. So in order to break that norm, which, you know, when we break social norms, people think we're crazy. We think they think that's why we're breaking a social norm is because there's something wrong with us. We don't know the rules. Uh, We must must be defective in some fashion. Um, Georgie will go to them and say, look, I know we're not supposed to talk to people on the subway, so I'm sorry, but I noticed, like, I really like 
your bag? Like, can you tell me where you got the bag? I'm looking for a bag like that myself. Mm. But by, by showing that you understand what you're doing, mm. it makes people much more comfortable than it would be if you were just like, I like your bag. In which case, they're going to think that this Give is like to prelude to an attack. Yeah, exactly. I know. Open it. Um, but but that's a pretty good, pretty great way to do it, too. And I did a lot of that stuff, just being like, look, I know we're not supposed to say this, but um, in people, you know, it makes them a little more comfortable. They're not going to be totally at ease, but it makes them a little comfortable. It shows that you have willpower and that you're, you're aware of yourself. Um, but they also, I find people kind of enjoy the audacity of it. It's just a funny thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it's unusual. And we have seen... But a growing body of research that um, when study participants of all ages and genders um, and races really um, are sent out to talk to strangers on mass transit and, you know, research has been done in Chicago and London and Turkey, um, all over the place, Toronto, um, they find that people are remarkably receptive. Mm-hmm. And people in London can't believe this because people in London think they're like the meanest people in the world, which they're yeah. not. They're perfectly friendly people. I've up <laughs> to much less friendly places in London. But there's this idea, this mythology about them that they're, they're unreachable. They're so cold. They're so hostile. It's like, you know, I grew up in Boston, a lot more hostile than London. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, but the experience has been, you know, Nicholas Epley, the psychologist I mentioned before, um, he, he found in one of his studies that there was no rejection. There was, there was no chance of rejection. Of the mm-hmm. hundreds of people who participated in the study, not one was rejected. So we're terrified that people are going to reject us for breaking the social norm, but it's pretty rare. And in my experience, I don't think it really happened either. Sometimes there are people who are just not in the mood and you have to kind of respect that. But there was never a time where people were, people were like, oh, God, get away from me. Yeah. Um, it tends to go well. And the conversations, you know, the research shows the conversations people had in these studies go longer than they expected. They're surprised at how much they like the people. They're surprised at how open the people are. They enjoy their commutes more when they chat with people on the subway. Um, so for Epley and for his partner, Juliana Schroeder on some of those studies, um, it was the idea that we, we've just fun, we're fundamentally misunderstanding what people want, what people enjoy. Right. Um, and we have all these norms about doing something against doing something that when we try it, it actually goes pretty well. And it's actually pretty good for us. Well, we're going to break the norm right here, and we are going to have uh, from our Zoom audience uh, people ask questions directly to you, too. Um, we collect them other ways, but we're, we're testing out our new system. So, Elizabeth, you have a question, right? I do. Hi, Joe. I'm really having fun with this conversation. Uh, thanks for your investigation. Uh, here's my question. I am uh, a traveler. I got a chance to go to Persia, to Iran, uh, uh, some time ago. And uh, so my question has to do with, can we use this kind of impulse um, to leverage politically? So my experience is um, Persians are not Arabs. They are, um, uh, they are nomads. And my, uh, my sense was they were one of the most welcoming people on the planet for hospitality. Amazing. Uh, Welcoming uh, strangers to the oasis was my hunch. So can we utilize that impulse to break down some of the walls between our cultures at this point? Like, can we use it strategically in some kind of way? That's a fantastic question. Yes. So short answer is yes. Uh, long answer is it's a question of scaling it um, to a size where it's effective and it can solve social problems, political problems. I spent a week with a group called Braver Angels. Um, and what Braver Angels does, it's a, it's a nonpartisan group that literally teaches Republicans and Democrats to speak to each other. Like it, it teaches them, it gives them the tools to be able to tolerate the sight of one another <laughs> and to share a table without murdering one another. Um, and it's funny because a lot of it is like, it has to be very controlled. There have to be a lot of rules because like, we don't, we're, we're out of, out of practice with these sorts of like political discussions. We we're deeply angry, deeply neurotic. Um, when people from different sides come together for a political discussion, they lead with the most confrontational stuff, right? That's the opener. And then you never get anywhere because you're just immediately fighting. You're talking past each other. There's no, you know, there's no discussion actually happening. There's no real argument. Braver Angels sits these people together, um, and I was, you know, at their convention in St. Louis. There's a few hundred people at it, but their their membership is, I think, fifteen thousand or something. It's, it's growing fast. It's a good organization, but they would sit them together, and then they would just make them talk to each other, but not about politics. So they would they would have to be like, "Where are you from? What are you doing here?" And they'll be like, "Oh, that's interesting. Do you have a dog? Oh, I have a dog. We therefore we like each other. Like, do you like football? Oh, I like football. Therefore we're the same. You know." But to connect as individuals before they connected as 
partisan avatars. Mm -hmm. um, and what that did was that it made it very, very difficult for them to dehumanize each other because they had already connected as humans. And what the insight is, the insight that you can take away from that is, if we don't connect as humans, it's impossible to have a, a discussion. <clears throat> it's impossible to have an argument. Um, you'll just never get there because the thing that keeps these arguments flying off the rails is a sort of form of dehumanization. Um, one side thinking the other side, the members of the other side are simple-minded. They're obedient. They don't have free will like our side has free will. They're just <laughs> witless, one-lunged like organisms on that side, whereas our side is very special. And we're all very, very diverse and thoughtful and, and not like them. <laughs> but that sort of contact, when you have contact across those boundaries, um, it's incredibly powerful. And it happens naturally when you're in the company of another person. It's very hard to do this on the internet because so it's so infrequent that we see each other's faces and we hear each other's voices. And that's how we judge the humanity of another person is through their body language, through their paralinguistic cues, um, by looking them in the eye. All this stuff is really important. And it evolved for a reason. It, it evolved because it, it helps us. It helps us make these connections. But you really do need to broker those connections and people need to be willing to have them to set aside kind of partisan grievance at first and be like, tell me about your dog. Tell me about your granddaughter. Um, and then from there, you can move on to the difficult stuff. Now that you're comfortable with each other and you respect each other and you know that, you know, each person is, is more complex than you might have given them credit for in the first place. But again, like I said, the question is scaling it. How do you scale it? How do you scale it in a country of 350 million people? It's very difficult. It's, a, it's like a national rebuilding effort that has to happen, I think. But that's, that's how you do it. It seems interesting to me that, that you know, uh, democracy is really not our habit. Uh, you know, this is a fairly new idea and, and new in practice. And, you know, people seem to have forgotten right now that democracy doesn't mean everybody agrees all the time about everything and that everybody has to think exactly alike. It's just that we have to think alike about the things that we have in common and that everybody else can then think differently. Now, it's never been actually like that, but that is the democratic experiment, as you say. Um, and so that's the ideal to move for. Now, there's lots yeah. more questions. It's really, it's really uh, good. Okay, so Great. Gerald, you have something uh, from the Zoom gallery. You want to go ahead and talk? You have, ask your question, Gerald? I think I'm up on mute. Can you guys yep. hear me? Yeah. We've got you. So when, when I first saw this topic, I was, I was drawn to the notion of uh, people telling strangers things that they don't even tell their friends, right? And I think the classic one, you know, it's a bartender where some guy, you know, yeah. tells someone that his wife just left him and his kids or whatever. So, uh, and I had an experience over the weekend where a person, you know, really opened up about the loss of her daughter. Uh, I never met her before, right? So uh, I just wonder if this whole thing about uh, we need strangers sometimes to offload things that are, that are bothering us that we really can't tell other people. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. We've all been in that situation where we just, by some fluke, end up sitting next to somebody and we just tell each other our life stories and we tell each other things that we might not have even told our friends. Um, there's, a, there's a term for it. It's called the stranger on a train um, phenomenon. And, you know, the thinking on it is that <clears throat> it's, it's innately rewarding for us to disclose things, right? It feels good to disclose things um, on like a biochemical level. And the reason why that might be is because when we disclose, as long as it's being done appropriately, and I'm not just wandering up to like a stranger on the sidewalk and being like, my, my mother or something else, like my mother used to, hit me. <laughs> um, you know, it has to be, you have to build to it. You have to follow each other and you get there eventually. And sometimes you get there quite quickly. Um, there are some guys who walk down the streets of San Francisco doing that, you know, without any audience at all. They're just telling their whole life story. So you, <laughs> that's the extreme. But yeah. Right. But when you, when you disclose something, it makes the other person comfortable and it makes them kind of flattered and it makes them trust you because you're being vulnerable. You think about it in terms of hospitality. I'm standing in your house, right? You can kill me very easily, but I'm going to trust you and you're going to trust me and we're going to move from there. And so when, you know, when we share something, it invites someone else to share something. And when you start sharing intimacies like that, it opens up the possibility of becoming friends of, of you know, expanding your social network. And I think he's, he comes back to that again and again and again. There's a real advantage to expanding our social networks and our wiring seems to be designed to um, effectuate that in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's funny when you, were, when you were telling me about that, when you mentioned bartenders, 
Um, I, when I was an editor, I've been a journalist for a long time, but I sent a young writer one time who was having romantic difficulties um, to go get free therapy from bartenders and people in bars. So I was like, I want you to go into a bunch of bars and I want you to just like confess what's happening to you to strangers and see what they say to you. And they were, they were marvelous. Like they were so great. Everybody was so invested in helping this kid and listening to him and they loved it. And, uh, and you know, the other upside of that sort of thing is that you can tell a stranger something if no relationship comes of this, right? If you don't stay in touch, whatever you told them is just gone, right? It's in the air. It's like you played a note on a saxophone. Like it's not coming back. It's not going to go back into the horn. It's not going to follow you around. It's not going to like be on your Twitter feed or anything like that and bury you later on. Um, it's immensely freeing to not have a paper trail. Um, it's nice to, to, to confess something to someone, provided it's not like a major crime or something, um, and not worry about it just living in your house for the rest of your life. Uh, it really is freeing. And, and I, I experienced that a lot, like, just because I talked to so many people over the course of doing this book. You saw it all the time. And I just thought it was like, I, I found it so heartening and funny and sweet and charming. I, I thought it was great. It's funny when you tell your friends things like that, you know, your secrets or whatever, especially if you're still in school and you're doing it you find that the, that person is now uncomfortable with you for several days to come. And I think what they're doing is they're waiting to find out what you're going to do with the information that, you just, <laughs> that they just gave you. Are you going to tell everybody? Are you going to, you know, like put it on Twitter now? And, and so uh, that's, that's why I advise younger people that I know. I just say, all you have to do is every time you see that person, they're looking at you uncomfortably, just treat them very friendly and make it clear somehow you're not saying anything to anybody. And, and it might take one day, it might take a couple of weeks, but eventually they'll calm down about it and then they might start sharing more with you. But, but, uh, yeah, yeah. but everybody is that uncomfortable right after that, you know, mm -hmm. if they're yeah, your friend no and they know. Yeah. Right, yeah, you've just handed them a loaded gun. Exactly. <laughs> Are you going to shoot me with it or not? <laughs> All right, uh, we have some other uh, from the online audience, uh, a couple other questions. Uh, from Diane, uh, we have a question. So chimps versus bonobos. Does this parallel social national groups that seem to self-select for more bellicose members, therefore perpetuating conflicts? It's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, yeah, I'm really not sure. It's, it takes so long for things to evolve that, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not something that would happen over the course of like a couple hundred years or something. Um, it's more, you know, my takeaway is more that you saw the behaviors uh, under different contexts. You saw chimp-like behavior or, um, or bonobo-like behavior. The second yeah, half of her too, question actually is... Oh, it, I'm sorry, I'll skip that. Go yeah. ahead. The second half of her question is actually something you did write about. It says, and how does that coexist with Arab hospitality more? You, you, you made a very clear point in, your, in, in the research uh, that said that being very, very hospital does not necessarily go with being friendly all the time. Being very friendly could be because you're in a dangerous situation and it can flip from being hospitable to being violent. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah, the, the really interesting thing I kept finding um, was, you know, I went into this wondering how cultures form that are friendly to strangers, you know, like known to be friendly. Mm -hmm. And at first I figured it had something to do with social trust. If you lived in a place that had a high degree of social trust, then that means that people see the people around them as human. They trust them. They don't feel they're threatening. And I figured that that would be the sort of thing that predicted a place's willingness to talk to strangers. That is not the case. What mm. that is, is Finland. And no one yeah. talks to strangers <laughs> in Finland. So the thing that ends up making, and I spent time in Finland too. Uh, yeah, but I love, I love the things, but they're, they're very quiet people. Um, <laughs> it's, they're very introverted, very introverted culture. Uh, and the reason why is the thing that makes humans friendly is friction. Now we tend to assume that friction makes us violent and it often does, but more often it makes us, it makes us friendlier. Um, and I'll give you an example. There's a phenomenon called smiling cultures. And what a smiling culture is, is a place that over the course of 500 years or so, um, or when you have a place that over the course of 500 years, four or 500 years, has experienced a ton of incoming immigration from a, like a great number of other countries, those cultures seem to evolve to be smiling cultures, which are cu cultures where people are much more emotionally expressive. They smile more, they laugh more, they're warmer, they're, they're better at reading other people's emotional states. So you look at somewhere like Latin America is, is famous for being a smiling culture and a lot of America is too. Um, and the reason why isn't because they love everybody, although it, there is evidence that shows that when you just kind of fake a smile all the time, you do actually become happier. Um, <laughs> it's because they needed to find a way to communicate and cooperate with people who had different cultural norms and spoke different languages. So when you live in a place like in New York, right, like every language in the world is spoken in New York. 
I have to be more expressive when I interact with people because I can't assume that they that English is their first language or that they have the same cultural norms that I do. So how do I signal to them that I'm friendly and that I'm cooperative? I smile, I raise my eyebrows, I give a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Um, in these cultures that have that have had to deal with the stresses of immigration over the long term, short term is a little different. They tend to be friendlier because it's it's because friendliness works, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a practical solution to the friction that comes with a mixing of different cultures and different languages. Um, and I really like that. And you see that, you know, like I said, in Latin America, but you don't see it in, say, Scandinavia because, number one, it's a largely homogenous, these are largely homogenous societies. But number two, the government is so effective that no one has to rely on anyone else for anything. The government mm-hmm. takes care of everything. So you don't have to do what you do in Mexico, which is constantly rely on other people to help get what you need done, done, because the local bureaucracy is corrupt and it's a mess and the police are corrupt and all these things. Like people in Mexico need to work together um, more to just go through their day-to-day lives than people in Finland do where everything is just taken care of. Um, And so that's just an instance of like friction and difficulty, um, forcing people to bond together and and find ways to socialize with one one another in order to to survive, in order to flourish. Um, And you you kind of saw it all over the world. Uh, I thought it was totally fascinating. And yeah. there's a message for today too, where we're under severe stress right now, right. and you know one one solution to that is just going to be violence, and that's not going to work out well. The other solution is to find ways to talk to each other. Um, you know, and humans have been very good at developing these ways over thousands of years that allowed us to live with people we don't know and maybe people we don't understand. I thought it was very generous of you to come down on the side of civilization um, on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know most most writers want civilization. Um, right. Yeah. 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 I'm, a, I'm a city man. I'm a city man. For sure. uh, you, you mentioned the big issue, you know, with Finland, big countries and everything. But you also had the research about the semi tribe, I think, in, in, in I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but some Indonesian tribe that was completely uh, nearly wiped out by outsiders. And they became this extremely smiling sort of, you know, overly friendly uh, approach. Yeah. And, uh, you had you had that example where, you know, there, there's a decent amount of data in the anthropological record that shows that places where people are extremely afraid of each other, traditional societies, places with histories of intense conflict that goes way back, um, tend to be very, very polite. Excuse me. Um, Because they have to be, because they they worry that if they're not polite, it's going to be interpreted as a slight and there's going to be violence and then there's going to be retributive violence and the whole thing's going to spiral out of control. There is a theory, the culture of honor idea, which um, people will apply to the American South to try to explain why the South is very friendly, generally very friendly, and you know in some ways and unfriendly in other ways, um, but very friendly because it was settled by ranchers like Scots Irish ranchers. And when you're a rancher and you live in a place that doesn't have any strong central institutions, doesn't have effective police, doesn't have effective government, you know this is back several hundred years ago, um, you're only as good as your reputation. So if your reputation is that you're soft. People are going to come and take your animals and you're going to go broke. So you needed to cultivate a reputation for being really fearsome. And the way you did that is by killing anyone who insulted you or defied <laughs> anything or diminished you, right? And so over time, the culture of honor hypothesis holds that people just became much more polite because there was danger in not being polite. There was danger in, in being perceived as being rude or humiliating somebody. Um, but then the kind of beautiful thing about that is that, you know, obviously the society changed and they did develop central institutions. But it kind of it seemed to generalize into the culture. So what started out as a practical response to a problem, the problem of violence, the problem of like living in a place with no no in- central institutions and stuff that could be stolen from you, was that they just stayed polite and they kind of stayed friendly. Uh, and I really like that idea. I, th- I mm-hmm. think that's that's kind of beautiful in a way. And you know, it's not to say that when you go to the south, like I mean, everybody's motives for behaving the way they do or, or individual motives. There's no one way to be. Um, but it's pretty cool that like people will be really friendly. Um, mm-hmm. And then you consider the dark roots of that friendliness. It just turned into the way that they interact with the world. Um, and it can be very pleasant. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun to travel in the South because you can just talk your way across it. Now, you finished your book with a very nice image uh, of uh, going back to the uh, Bible one more time um, of Eve and the snake. And, and, and you wanted to I wanted you to finish with that, have a little comment afterwards. So why don't you say what, what you're proposing you're proposing you're proposing that Eve and the snake are, are be given a monument. Um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm on Team Snake without question. I'm on, on Team, team Eve and yeah. I'm on Team Snake because otherwise, and again, I'm, I'm a city man, right? So this is this is my thing. Um, garden living in a garden forever seems strike me as intolerably boring. Um, but the Adam and Eve story is, you know, the snake comes in and the snake convinces 
Eve to be curious. The mm -hmm. tree of knowledge represents curiosity, it represents worldliness. Um, and she listens to the snake, they take the apple, they eat the apple, they're banished from the garden. Um, so what do they really lose? They lose being in a garden with a God who keeps trying to dupe them into doing things that are going to get kicked out of the garden. I make a joke about how I don't think any of this is going to stand up in court. Um, <laughs> it's pretty clear. This is, you know, we're, we're, we're on, we're bordering on entrapment at a few occasions, a few instances in the, in the garden of Eden, but um, you know, Adam and Eve are cast out into the world. And, uh, and what does that mean to be cast out in the world? It means that you are going to be in the company of more than one person and a deity for the rest of your life. And that's scary and that's difficult. And there are challenges with communication. There's strife. Um, you know, there's a failure of understanding, failures of empathy. But the upside to me is so much better where it's just, you know, when you really think about this, and this is not the, you know, I'm not by nature this kind of person. This happened because I did this work for, for years. It's mind-blowing the variety of humans, humans around us. And it's astonishing how great their stories are. And it's mm -hmm. incredible how valuable their insights can be and how that can expand us and that can enrich us and that can help us understand the world and it can help us become wise. And it can teach us to live together, which I think is the name of the game, figuring out how to live with people who are different than you are. This is the key challenge of the human species. But it's so fantastic when you have these, you know, I, I think... It might have been George Simmel or one of those old school sociologists who, who cited cities as creating like um, interesting cultural hybrids, right? And he was sort of being dismissive about it. But when you do have people of different cultures coming together, um, and oftentimes this can be violent too, but when they can come together and, and kind of intermingle their cultures and you have different styles of music coming together and different styles of cooking coming together, like that for me is the stuff of life. If I had to spend my whole life with like all the like the people who are just like me, who I, who, you know, maybe I grew up with, it would just get really boring to me. It feels like a real, a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity for growth. So when Adam and Eve get thrown out of the garden, um, yeah, life's got to be hard, right? You're not just going to be able to sit around in this garden all day. You're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to learn. You're going to have to grow. Um, but that's the most beautiful thing in the world. That's when, you know, at its best humanity is like, is astonishing to me. Um, but it can't happen unless we're in the company of people who are different than we are. And I, that's why I wanted to end with it, because I thought there's, there was two reasons that I liked that uh, way you used Adam and Eve's story. Uh, one was he talked about that it would never stand up in court. I always made jokes that, uh, you know, to be disobedient, there was no precedent. So there's no, no way of knowing what the outcome was going to be anyway. So there's no precedent. Um, and the other, the other part of it that I, I really liked was, uh, I, I think also, and I wrote it in, a, in an essay 40 years ago called Biblical Heroes, that Eve is the first hero of the Bible. Um, because she's the first person to question unreasonable authority, you know? <laughs> just, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So we, we take that, that story, capricious. and it's, it's just like you said, people are so different. The story means one thing to one people, but it's, it's, it's that kind of archetypal story where everybody can take out of it something that they, they appreciate, um, mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that the, the official version uh, of understanding it is totally different. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, no, I love that. And that's, that's why great. you need strangers. <laughs> So thank you very much, Joel. That was just great. Uh, and so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion here in San Francisco. And Joe from New York City. From Biden. Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, That's New right. York. Yep. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for asking the questions from the Zoom gallery. That was just great. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.